This is the biggest story in the world. We will look back on these times and we will think, what on earth were we doing? From The Guardian. This is a story about people and this is a story about possibility. It's a story that's eluded us for decades. A topic which The Guardian is now throwing itself wholeheartedly into. I'd seen how we'd done it on other things. Climate change. So we're letting you in behind the scenes. Editorial meetings, bids for commissions. You'll hear what works as well as our mistakes. And along the way, you can judge how we do. Is there a new way to make the world care? The biggest story in the world on The Guardian. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, the simplest, most powerful website creator that helps you make headlines with your own stunning online presence. Explore elegant templates, Getty image integration, and more at squarespace.com and use the code Guardian to get 10% off. The novelist Will Self has always been suspicious of the freedom we ascribe to fictional characters, suggesting that it is the fact that their lives are so utterly determined which makes them so moving. The tragic fates and happy endings which are so evidently already written for these shadows, he argues, capture something of our own human predicament in a bleak, deterministic universe. For the philosopher John Gray, the unconscious forces and biological impulses which rule our lives make freedom nothing but a comforting illusion, an illusion which he attempts to dispel in his latest book, The Soul of the Marionette. When these two intellectual titans confronted each other at a Guardian Live event, Self began by suggesting that Gray has been examining many of the same questions since the 1980s. But do the answers he's provided over the last four decades amount to a description of reality? Uh, the other day I was reading some of the poems, someone's influenced me, Wallace Stevens. And I was reading his poem about the blue guitar. And I think he says, that's some line in there, he says, I can't patch a whole picture of a round world. What he means is, however hard he struggles, he can't come up with a view of the world which is entirely abstracted from his own perspective and his own position in history. None of us can. It's impossible. For example, if you said to me in the jargon of traditional philosophy, you know, are you a materialist? Mm. Are you a an epiphenomenalist? Are you a neutral monist? Are you a, a determinist or an indeterminist? Because this book is about freedom. I would try and avoid all those questions, not just because I'm not an academic anymore, but <laughs> that is one of the reasons. But because I agree with Borges, where he wrote, in many things, he wrote, Met metaphysics is a branch of fantastic fiction. And I think that's also true, by the way, even more true of moral and political philosophy, as they've usually been practiced. Yes, but what moral and political philosophy, as they've usually been practiced, have assumed human beings who are actually not human beings, as we find ourselves and those we know, and those we see around us and interact with us, and we find it. They're not those at all. They're quite different. Put this simply, actually, there was one great line. I mean, I, Bertrand Russell is someone I 
don't necessarily admire in everything he did, but he was a very brave human being. There's one great line in Bertrand Russell, which I always remember. He set up various schools and he said, it's a queer thing, he said, but practically all the political philosophies that have ever been written have assumed that all the human beings in the world are adults. You know, I would sort of add to that. They've assumed that all the human beings in the world are more or less sane, unless whatever that means. Or to put it as the simplest, are like us. Mm. But how did we get to be the way we are? So you're right, I'm not trying to provide, to provide a kind of a range of glimpses or patches or uh, which partly through texts, all these three books, especially the last three, Straw Dogs, mm. Science of Animals and the present one, uses texts. They're hardly ever, there's a little bit of Hobbes in the new book, they're hardly ever from professional, from the history of philosophy. They're usually writers or poets. And they're usually, quite commonly, from writers or poets who've had lives, their own lives, that actually involved them in big changes in the world. They've been right in the middle. And somehow, because most people, are, and many people in these changes, either have no opportunity to write about them, or even can't, mm. because sometimes they're killed, or sometimes they emerge rather sort of unhinged, or, there are various, or it's just too painful, and they want to put it behind them. But there are a few writers who've lived through enormous changes in which an entire world, a human world, has vanished, usually forever. And another one's taken its place, and they've written about that experience. If you want me to give you an example, um, Kersler wrote a book called The Scum of the Earth, which is a, a version of a diary. It's more or less written like a diary. It's, about, it's a diary of the fall of France when he was living as a person with no papers and no state and no future in France, in Paris. It's what it's like to be in a country which has been taken over by the Nazis. The rumours, nobody knows what's happening. People, some people are already trying to accommodate themselves to what they expect will happen. They're trying to sort of switch. They're already beginning to be denunciations. I mean, it's a fantastic book, written at the time, very well. He escaped, he had a strong will to live. He escaped, by the way, this shows real talent, I think. He escaped by joining the Foreign Legion. He joined the Foreign Legion, which sent him to, 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 to Africa. In Africa, the borders weren't manned. He deserted, the penalty was death. Managed to get on a boat, ended up in Britain, was immediately put in jail, which he said was the first time he'd felt free for the last two or three years. <laughs> so I, he's not one of my heroes. He was a monster in many ways, actually. Um, in, in his life, but there, that's the kind of example I'm trying to get sort of little shards and sh slivers of perception uh, from people who either have written about it or have written about and lived through these big changes, in which, if you like, J.G. Ballard was another, in which, as it were, an underlying instability in the human world is made clear to them of what they make of that and how they go on from it. As you say, and how they go on, because neither Ballard nor Kirsten nor the others I've written about were frozen or paralyzed in it. They did go on and do many other things. With The Soul of the Marionette, mm. the writer you begin with is Kleist, mm. and you begin with this essay, this fable, mm. and the central image is this marionette, mm. this puppet, and this man, I think he's the guy who does the choreography for the dancers at the opera, who's observing mm. the puppet master manipulate the marionette. In a town square. In a, yeah, in a, in a town square. Yeah. And, and to the narrator of the story, he makes these observations mm. about the freedom mm. of the marionette yeah. and that we are mistaken if we view the puppet mm. as being, in some sense, 
uh, a kind of victim of its fate and mm. under control of another because what it's free from is gravity because yeah. the force that moves its limbs is stronger than yeah. gravity. So it achieves a kind of grace yes. that is impossible yes. for any animal that is enthralled to gravity. This is the central image and yeah. motif of the book, but it implies, and I hope I'm not taking too much of a leap here, mm. an assumption of radical skepticism mm. about the nature of the human condition. It does, with. it does. But you see, what I got from the story, I mean, it's it, early 19th century story, had enormous ramifications in European and German literature, especially Rilke, uh, Bruno Schultz. Lots of people wrote about it or tried to figure out what it meant. My thought about it was relatively simple, which is that the interlocutor who's describing what he thinks when he looks at the puppet envies the puppet. The key thing is that, though he said, here we have these puppets. They're not like human beings. They don't stumble. They don't, they're not always on the brink of falling down. They're Behavior isn't stuttering and jerky. They look wonderfully graceful, wonderfully... Um, it's a central paradox. And why is this? Because they're not subject to gravity. And what is gravity? Gravity is the burden of choice. So uh, he envied them. And I think this envy of this type of freedom, you know, paradoxically, you say it's the ultimate type of unfreedom, because what could be more unfree than a mindless puppet? What could be more unfree than that? I mean, that was the paradox in Kleist's mind when he invented the story, is that right throughout history, there have been philosophies and religions, and the one I focus on all the way through the book is Gnosticism, which have proposed a radical idea of freedom, which is that freedom really consists in acquiring a type of knowledge, which if you really acquire it and internalize it and get used to it, will free you from the burden of choice. And that's even in Western philosophy. I mean, it's even in Socrates. Go back right to the start of the Greek tradition, at least in Western philosophy, which is that if we know the good, we'll do the good. And so this idea, which the whole book is an attack on, actually, this Gnostic idea, which is now kind of escaped from Gnosticism as a religion, just as a footnote, interesting footnote perhaps, the last genuine Gnostics in the world who went all the way back 2,000 years were the Mandians in, um, in Iraq. That's to say, pre, that's to say pre, pre-free Iraq. In Saddam's Iraq and British Iraq and Ottoman Iraq, they, were all, they survived all those years. Most of them, I'm told and I've read, have had to flee they're here in London or in Melbourne or in various parts of the world. They've been massacred after 2,000 years. Even though they never convert, they never try to convert anyone else. They're just a small community. Because all the way back, the only genuine ones, genuine ones left in the whole world. Um, so uh, they, they, these Gnostics, religious Gnostics, are the victims of secular Gnostics. I think so. Because yeah. the way what happened in modern times, and there are many different sort of stages of this, is that this idea that we could be liberated from choice by knowledge... We could achieve freedom from choice by having a knowledge of ourselves or the world. In the ancient Gnostics, it was a special type of mystical knowledge or self-knowledge. We'd realize that we really aren't fleshly animals that get old and frail and get tired and die. What we are are sparks of mind or consciousness in a dark material world, which, however, if we get involved in various ascetic exercises and forms of fasting and prayer, we can emancipate ourselves from this and we can get into the light. We can get into the light, a world which is composed in a sense only of light. This idea, 
went through many different kind of forms. And in modern times, it's an idea that humanity, not the separate, each separate adept or Gnostic practitioner, but humanity, can emancipate itself from its former condition of ignorance and conflict through knowledge, through scientific knowledge. And there are many writers nowadays, including some I found very interesting, I don't share their views at all, but there are many writers who take a kind of radical version of this scientific Gnosticism. Ray Kurzweil, transhumanists of the various kind, what they say is we can use the knowledge we now have and that we're accumulating to turn ourselves into a being different from and better than that which we biologically have been. Because biologically, what we've been is dying animals. That's what we've been. We don't want to be that anymore. And if we use this knowledge, which we're getting now through, and the new technologies that are spinning off it, we can upload our minds into cyberspace, we can upload the contents of our brains, and we can become invulnerable. We can mm. become immortal, which is very like, by the way, like the ancient Gnostic view, except that it's done through technology. You said that, that partly because you weren't an academic any longer, mm. but it, that was being a little bit flip. Mm. The reason I believe, from my understanding of your work, why you don't describe yourself as a materialist mm. or as a determinist or mm. as any of these things is because you don't believe that it's possible to arrive at mm. any certain knowledge of those mm. things, mm. including you do not believe it is possible to arrive at any certain knowledge or understanding about the extent or the ambit of free will in the human subject. I, you're absolutely right, Will, but I'll put it in a slightly different way. I think the extent to which we can know why we do what we do is extraordinarily limited. That's to say, that, I mean, this is where the marionette comes in. Not that anybody's pulling the strings. I mean, in my book, I discuss the, what, the peculiar logic of conspiracy theories, which are a kind of backhanded complement to human reason, in a way, because they assume that history is moved by these sinister elites that kind of do things and arrange things. My view is, and I sort of analyze, I discuss one particular alleged conspiracy, which is the kidnap and murder of Aldo Moro, the Prime Minister, in, uh, former Prime Minister of, of Italy. And from that, I discuss various kind of theories. Interestingly, by the way, almost no one who's ever written on this, the, 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 the episode has taken the view that the murder was committed by those who claim to have committed it. All of them just think that's just ridiculously sort of far-fetched. You don't mean to say they said they did it. Well, they might have said they did it, but it's just like nonsense. I think the key thing is Obviously, the people who are physically involved, kind of kidnapping him and then shooting him, filling him with bullets and putting him in the back of a car, they will have known if they lived for very long. Might not have, but I mean, if they would have known that, that they did it. But would they have known what, why they were doing it? Who they were doing it for? If they were doing it for someone, would they, those people know why they were doing it? My argument is that even those involved in conspiracies, which in one sense are a kind of perfect example of intentional action, normally don't know what's going on, normally have no idea what's going on. They're in the same position as the rest of us, which is that there are a few facts. I'm not a complete postmodernist. There are a scattering of facts. Aldemaro was kidnapped. <laughs> he was shot. His body was found in the back of a car. There are odd things. The story I tell in, in the book is that at one high point when everybody's wondering what happened to him, a group of senior politicians gathered together in someone's home and consulted a Ouija board. 
this actually happened. It yielded dividends. It yielded dividends. It came up with a word which they identified as the name of a town or a village. All the forces of the Italian security state, the deep state, descended on this town. Everyone's totally baffled and petrified in this town. He's somewhere there, they thought. Not, no one there, of course. And then there were theories of what this really was. What was this? Was this because someone among the Ouija board people, the politicians, actually wanted, did know where he was, but wanted to just distract attention from him? Was it in order, you know, many different things. Some people even held, this is the most fantastic supposition of all, that the whole thing was just a joke, the Ouija board. But it was never found out. What I conclude is that when we're reading history and when we're reading even our own lives, we're almost in the position of reading the text of a Ouija board. We've got a scattering of facts. We know certain things that happened. We can have memories. They can be false, but we can check them against facts mm. and the memories of others. But from that, it's very difficult to come up with an account of why we did what we did and why other people did what they did. And that, I think, is possibly an insuperable limit to human knowledge, mm. uh, unlike the knowledge of biographical knowledge and historical knowledge is insuperably very slippery and patchy. We can know better in some cases. We can know when something didn't happen. We can know certain facts. As I say, I'm not a complete postmodernist. But in kind of coordinating, turning that into a, a real understanding of why we've done what we've done is very difficult. And so for that reason, I try and avoid what I'm dealing with in the book. is not a theory of determinism or indeterminism or libertarianism and compatible, all these philosophical positions. I'm asking in a way a simpler, but I think more interesting and more difficult question. What's the kind of freedom or what kind of freedom do we actually want? Mm. And what kinds of freedom do we actually display in our lives? I mean, if what we want is a type of freedom which implies profound self-knowledge, what do we think we'll get from self-knowledge? And do we think we ever can really have self-knowledge anyway? You might not like any of those labels, but in a way you are a kind of negative compatibilist. In other mm. words, I don't think you think it's possible to differentiate between situations in which we believe mm. that our own intentionality is involved in a successful mm. action mm. and those in which other causal factors mm. are predominant. And I think it's also fair to say mm. that, I mean, you say, you say several times in the book, apropos of science, mm the regularities that science relies on as, as kind of laws of nature mm. may only be local regularities mm. in a chaotic world. And I think it might be fair to say that, that your philosophy uh, holds true whether or not human actions are completely determined mm. Mm. or we live in some kind of situation where there is a possible ambit for, mm. for free yeah. will, though yeah. actually we were talking about Galen Strawson beforehand, I think his work and objection to the idea that chaos allows for free will any more than mm. determinism is quite a strong is relevant, argument yes, yeah. and is relevant here. But in your description of us, which is implicit, as conscious marionettes, mm. and in your discussion of kind of what it is possible for us to know about the world, mm. uh, and really what we can know about the mm. world is that there are many subjectivities uh, and they're incommensurable with each other with each other or they're only commensurable in, in mm. limited and somewhat confusing ways mm. it's not unlike the gnostic view itself uh in some respects but they're basically different i mean in a sense you could say what i'm trying to do is i'm trying to come up with a few suggestions as to how an uber marionette not an uber mensch 
Not Nietzsche. I mean, I love Nietzsche, but I think whenever I hear anything about the Ubermensch or the Superman, I, I can just, you know, I lose interest. Or as Karl Krauss, the great Viennese wit, said, why does he have to write about these supermen all the time when there are so few human beings? Um, especially grown-up ones. So I'm not interested in any of that, but the, the Ubermarionette, the machine that knows it's a machine. I mean, suppose we're all like the, the replicants in Blade Runner, except that we haven't been made by a mysterious corporation. We've been thrown uh, up by chance. Neither you or I looks much like Rutger Hauer. <laughs> True. <laughs> well, but they're diabolically clever, these corporations, you know. Uh, but uh, how could we think of our position in the world? And uh, I guess you could say that has a kind of Gnostic touch to it. Where it differs radically is that for the kind of freedom that I think to be possible, which is a type of inner freedom, isn't a freedom gained by perfect or complete or even greater knowledge. It's what Keats, I don't identify him in the book, but he's in the last page, called negative capability, which is the freedom of knowing that you don't know and can't know and won't know why you do what you do. You might have an ethic which says, I've got to think about why I'm doing what I'm doing. I'll do my best. I'll try and work out the consequences. I'll apply various ethical and tests to this. But you can't know you can get ever more scientific knowledge, we can get ever more neurology, we can get ever more sociology and psychology and, and even history, but you can't know the most important things which enable you to live your life. And accepting that, I think, that's about the most radical form of anti-gnosticism mm. you can possibly have. So that's the sense in which the book, although it's, the book is all about Gnosticism in one way or another, but Gnosticism is the target of the book, not the philosophy that I'm promoting. Political instability is one thing, mm. but really from straw dogs on, another kind of major defining characteristic, it seems to me, of your philosophy is, again, rather paradoxically, something you seem to suspect very strongly will happen, mm. which is the environmental mm. devastation mm. of our world. I mean, you seem pretty much in, in lockstep with James Lovelock on this, mm. you're even prepared in some places in your writing to kind of put numbers on it, to talk in terms of an 80% collapse possibly in human numbers, uh, to do timings that are getting going in the middle of this century. Can't remember that. Well, I assure you that you did. <laughs> um, I'll accept but, it. But... To what extent, I think as, a, as a, an outsider and a reader of your work, mm. one, one's always tempted to feel, and this may be the kind of woeful delusions of liberal humanism clouding mm. one's vision yet again, but one's tempted to think, well, which came first? Your belief that this is extremely likely to happen, QED, necessary to arrive at a philosophical perspective that will make it bearable, mm. post-humanism, or does the post-humanism come first and then you think, yeah, now it's okay to contemplate the apocalypse? <laughs> well, remember, it's only apocalyptic from the standpoint of the human animal. I know that sounds kind of rather... From the standpoint of the, of the planet, it's normal. There been lots of changes like this. Most of them have not been caused by humans because humans weren't around. I mean, the last really big one, I think, was about 60 million years ago when the biosphere shrank by about 97 or 98%. And yet out of that, it came back and produced the 
gorgeous world, mm. bits of which are still left, as it were. Um, uh, I guess, no, I don't know how which came first, but let me put it like this. Where I differ from the conventional Greens is that their belief is that because humans principally caused, as I think they did, the current round of global warming, I think I'm not a climate skeptic in that. I mean, as far as I understand the science and the scientists I know, Jim Lovelock and others, they're pretty well, you know, it's pretty solid. It's about as solid as you can get, actually. If we did stop doing everything that pollutes the planet, the immediate result might not be the one we want. It might be a higher temperature. But the deeper reason is, ask yourself the question, in a world in which something like the war in Syria is going on, in a world in which the war in uh, Ukraine is going on, in which pretty well all the main powers and have got any clout are planning on the commercial exploitation of the polar caps. For many years, people have asked me, well, how would we know if the view I'm taking of all this is, is true? For about the last 10 years, I've been saying, well, watch what happens at the polar caps. Watch, watch what the, the last big, especially if, the, if, if sea levels rise and the world gets warmer, and so possibilities of navigation are open up and huge possibilities of mineral exploitation. And so what you'll see then, by the way, is that the goodies, the, the environmental goodies, the Canadians and the Danes, forget it. They'll be among, they'll be in the scramble to get these. Not just the Russians and the evil Americans and et cetera, et cetera, as they're, always, as they're always described. Everybody will be involved in it. Humans can go through great difficulties. Mm. You know, if enough of them survive, they can reconstitute something like a civilized form of life. So it's not an apocalypse that we're facing. It's a, it's a series of great difficulties which will require enormous types of adjustment but not some collective action by a human forum that doesn't exist. What's this forum going to be? You know, if UN, well, the UN is used by great powers for their ends. And if they can't use it, sometimes they use it to legitimate wars, which means they turn up and lie, as happened in the Iraq war. Or if it's really not that going to work, they just ignore it and do what they want to do anyway. So that's the reality. And I think unless one sort of grasps that, you don't know really what kind of world you're living in. Now, you might then say, well, why should we know? What's the point of it, as it were? Well, the only kind of advantage I'm suggesting, you'll certainly, if you take the view of things I'm suggesting, you'll be less surprised. Um, you'll know what to expect. And therefore, to some extent, you can plan your own life. And that, not plan, but you can formulate your own life on the basis of a picture which is closer. I only say closer. It's still fragmentary, not a complete picture, to what's going to happen. You can know certain things won't happen. Let me give you an example now. It seems to be a kind of view in parts of the West that the world would be greatly improved if we got rid of Putin. Now, I'm no defender of the Putin regime. Uh, it's an unfathomably corrupt and dangerous, very dangerous, especially dangerous now, actually. I've been to the Baltic states, and, uh, and anyone who thinks they're not at war in, um, in Ukraine needs uh, brain testing, as it were. It's clearly a proxy war uh, which is going on. You kind of remove the, what, what's going to happen? You could put a Harvard liberal economist in? <laughs> Is this going to be a regime change like we had in Iraq? Or even more, Libya? Imagine Lib it wasn't Libya, but it was Russia. An enormous, gigantic landmass with nuclear weapons. What strategic geniuses are at work on this great project? It's, I don't think it's going to happen for us. You know, for, or if it does happen, it'll happen in a chaotic way, which is frightening. Which is extremely frightening, because if that were to melt down, maybe it did over the last, who knows, it would be really, really dangerous. So one can, as it were, I think, see 
real possibilities better if you adopt this view. And at the end of one of my books, I think Straw Dogs, I quote Joseph Conrad, a writer I enormously admire for many different reasons as a writer and also as a human being. And he said his aim, and my aim is less than that because he said his aim was to enable the reader to see what the readers see is, in a sense, up to them. But all I can do is apply a bit of Kleenex to the glasses now and then, and then they see whatever they do see. Guardian listeners get the latest news, but they can also create it. With our sponsor Squarespace, you can easily create an elegant website for your personal brand, online store, business, personal portfolio, or blog. Whoever you are, Squarespace's simple tools and elegant designs make your ideas newsworthy and accessible to any audience. Try it at squarespace.com and use the offer Guardian to get 10% off. As the session opened up to questions from the floor, one audience member was keen to hear more from Gray on his ideas about individual freedom. You talked a bit about what or or how self-knowledge isn't going to lead to the kind of freedom we might find useful or want. Can you say a bit more about what kind of freedom would be worthwhile striving for? I mean, is it a kind of radical acceptance of impotence? That's what you seem to be suggesting. Again, I mean, that's a core question. Um, What I'm suggesting is that the freedom we think we want, I mean, it may not be what we do want. We often think we want conditions of our lives, which when we get close to them, we find out we don't want. The freedom we think we want is one in which we're relieved of the burden, even if it's an illusory burden, of choice by greater knowledge, either greater knowledge of neurology or of science or of self-knowledge. Do I really want to do this? How do I take a decision about this? If I feel I can take a decision and I have a decision which is, so to speak, objectively open to me, I can act in different ways, I feel, and maybe I can't in some neurological, but that's what I feel. Many people, I think, throughout the history of thought, and not just of thought, but of literature and poetry and philosophy and religion, have wanted a kind of knowledge which would rid them of that uncertainty. And if you're a theist, you say the service of God, in obedience to God, is perfect freedom. As long as you can find out what God wants, not necessarily the easiest thing, by the way, but anyway, as long as you can find out what God wants, do that, what God wants of you, by the way, when, when people talk about it, I always remember the, the, line, of the line in the Solzhenitsyn story about Ivan Denisovich in which there's a Christian in the gulag and the Christian's explaining that he, the Christian, feels free in the gulag because um, he knows that God put him there. And the person in the next bunk says, all right, but why am I here? <laughs> um, I think that's kind of a very, good, uh, a, a very good, good question. The freedom I'm, so to speak, recommending is the one, and if you want to read more about it, although it's only a single letter, I think it's a tremendously powerful letter. It's the letter of Keats where he talks about negative capability. He says, the freedom which he admires, the inner freedom, is the freedom to live without the irritable itch 
after fact and certainty, live in mysteries and ignorance. And that. It doesn't mean you're not interested in the latest scientific knowledge. That's going on all around us, and I don't think that's going to stop. I, I would expect it, actually. And here I share Courtois' view, at least in this respect. I think it'll, it'll carry on explosively for as far as we can tell. And by the way, everyone is younger than me in this room. Anyone sort of 40 or 50 or younger than that, I believe, will see enormous, gigantic changes, greater than those I've seen in my life, which will affect, for example, their employment. Masses and masses of jobs or occupations or professions or vocations are going to be eliminated. Ones which not, are not concerned only with speed of calculation or processing big information, but with tasks that we normally think of as involving human judgment. Kurtzweil says the new breed of machines, he thinks, will flirt rather well. Maybe better than humans flirt. I don't know how you flirt better than a human, but anyway, let's put that aside. But things like medical diagnosis, legal cases, investment, these are already succumbing to algorithmic machines. And so what I'm what I'm suggesting, that kind of technological transformation is um, coming anywhere, yes, Will? No, I'm just going to say, I mean, do you view that, or, I mean, you're, you're not exactly sanguine, but what you march with Kurzweil in believing is, as you just said, that it is possible that some kind of hybridization with machine intelligence will happen. Yeah. Do you think it's already happening? I mean, software is being written by software. Yes, I think it's already un underway. And we, we just don't recognize it, because it's not kind of by brain implants yet. Mm. And it's not by what um, some people have written about this. I'm not an expert, but they've written about what they call an interbrain. An interbrain would come about if one person, and then 10 person, and 100 person, and 1,000 person maybe, were all linked together and with a computer. So, and if this could be developed, which again, some people like Kurtzweil say is technologically quite feasible over the next 10 or 20 or 30 years, it would have very profound results, I think. I mean, for one thing, the memories of all of these people would be available to each other. Not much future of a Proust day, then. Uh, I mean, the, 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 the genre of, of, of autobiography would be kind of knocked a bit on one side. That would be one profession. The autobiographer would be really in a, in a tough spot. Um, but there would be enormous questions if, if something like that becomes possible, and we shouldn't. You know, we shouldn't say that it's not possible because, again, I'm antediluvian enough, I'm medieval enough to have grown up in a world without photocopiers, let alone the internet, let alone algorithmic trading on the stock exchange, let alone the fact that for every single person in this room, I believe, I'd be surprised if it's not true, if it was true, if it's, nearly everything that you've done today and in the previous days is electronically traced and stored. Because one of the features of, which was predictable, by the way, 10 years ago, even on the basis of public knowledge about the types of technologies that would come, one of the features of this new and in many ways uh, benign and emancipating technology that we've got with the internet, the new electronic media, is that it abolishes, I think permanently, privacy. As we've traditionally, unless you're as old as I am, you won't know what it would, have, will mean to live in a private world. Anything that leaves an electronic trace, which is practically everything you now do, go and have a coffee, pay cash maybe, but you took the cash out of a bank, you walk down the street, you have a phone in your pocket, it's tracking you. I mean, I semi-seriously in the book say that uh, Andy Warhol said, 
you know, everyone can have 15 minutes of fame. I think 15 minutes of anonymity is an impossible dream now. <laughs> and if you did have 15 minutes of anonymity, you'd be tracked by everybody in the entire world. It would be the worst thing that could happen to you because you would have disappeared off the map. So this, this kind of transformation that people like Kurzweil talk about, my objection to it is not that it can't happen. I think on the contrary, the little I understand of the technologies and just what's happened in my own lifetime suggests to me that it can happen and something like it probably will happen. Now, so it's better to start thinking about it. But what I kind of resist in the Kurzweil view is the idea that this is a kind of Gnostic project of liberation, that what's going to happen, he says, that we can merge our minds into an intermind, we can acquire this kind of almost godlike power of mind, and we can, res we can stop being mortal, we can stop being in conflict, we can stop all those things. I don't believe any of that for a single moment. One of the reasons I don't believe that is that in the real world there wouldn't just be one interbrain. There'd be many. And probably those interbrains would conflict with each other. Just as now in the cyber world, the cyber world isn't a world of timeless peace. The cyber world is a world of perpetual warfare and rather strange and constantly mutating viruses. That's the kind of the, the, the world. That's, so it would be better if we understood that. I'm not saying that is possible because a certain kind of technological Gnosticism is part of our culture. I mean, it's in the Matrix. It's in, it's in all kinds of things that we. I'm not saying that the culture can be changed. I don't. But if individually we could recognize that all of these technologies, though world transforming, or even when, especially when they're world transforming, are ambiguous in their effects, always ambiguous in their effect. And very, very few technologies, I think, which are consistently and unequivocally benign. And the more radical they are, the more they'll have various different effects. So the elimination of all these positions and jobs and vocations, which I believe will happen, in one way will pose great problems because, you know, what are people going to do, actually? Because it won't be, it, it won't be, it'll cut right through what are now considered to be the middle classes. On the other hand, of course, it opens up many other new possibilities of living. If we could shake off some of the old institutions, at least in some contexts, then we could live in a different way. Yeah. Or different people could live in different ways, because there isn't just one solution to any of these, um, these difficulties. As your moderator, I'm very sorry, but we're going to have to wind up the proceedings at this point. But it just remains to me to thank him as ever for his luminous yeah, thank thinking. You. Thank you. The Soul of the Marionette is published in the UK by Alan Lane, while Will Self's latest novel, Shark, is published by Viking. Next week we'll be off to Mexico in search of the most exciting literary talent from North America's most southern nation. For more literary discussion, join us on The Guardian Books website, or subscribe on iTunes, or follow us on SoundCloud. Just search for Guardian Books Podcast. Thanks to Will Self and John Gray, from me, Richard Lee, and our producer, Eva Krisiak. See you next time. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio.